You ever been in a situation where someone warns you right up front? It's probably going to be awkward. Like uh, walking into a conversation, you know what, this conversation is going to be awkward, we got to have it, or hey, this situation might get awkward. You ever, you ever been there? Because here's what I tend to think when that happens. I tend to think, if you are aware enough to warn me that this is going to be awkward, isn't there something you can do to make it less awkward? Like, if you're aware enough to tell me this is going to be awkward, then fix it. That's just what I, I mean, that's just my opinion. Uh, nobody likes awkward situations, right? There's nobody going like, listen, I love me some awkward situations. In those, I thrive, and I just find me some more. And so if you know about it in advance enough to tell me it's going to be awkward, you should do whatever you can to fix it. But that's not always possible, is it? And I say all that to tell you this, we're going to talk about sin today, and it's probably going to be awkward. And the only way I could fix that for us would be to avoid the topic altogether. But there's this passage in the book of Matthew, part of a greater teaching of Jesus we call the Sermon on the Mount, that I want us to study today that requires some serious upstairs thinking to live out. If you weren't able to be with us last Sunday, we began this series called Upstairs Thinking, and the idea behind it is that there are some things that Jesus called his followers to, called the crowds that gathered wherever he went to, and calls us to, that are counter to what our culture says, are counter to our human nature, or both. And in order to live out these commands and callings of Jesus, it takes a change in our thinking, it takes a change in our perspective. We have to change the way we view life, from downstairs thinking of this world to the upstairs thinking of God. And so if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go back and watch on Facebook or listen or watch on our website. Um, you can always go back and do that if you want to catch up. Last week, we talked about loving even when it makes no sense, but today we're going to talk about sin. Now, sin by definition is an offense against religious or moral law or a transgression of the law of God. And, and those are good dictionary definitions. As kids, we're taught Sin is when you do something wrong. Again, that's not terrible. That's not a bad definition. But, but I would clarify it this way for our purposes today and make sure we understand that sin is the thing that separates us from God. In the beginning when God created everything, when God created Adam and Eve, in the book of Genesis we read that God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. That there was no separation between God and man. And that was the way it was supposed to be. That was... Uh, the way God intended it. It sounds amazing. It perfectly illustrates that it was God's desire from the very beginning for man to be with him, for there to be no separation. But then Adam and Eve sinned, and they were removed from the garden, and life as we know it began, life separated from God. It's written this way later on in the book of the prophet Isaiah, as Isaiah gives God's people an extended message from God in Isaiah 59, beginning verse 1. Listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear your call. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Your hands are the hands of murderers, and your fingers are filthy with sin. Your lips are full of lies, and your mouth spews corruption. No one cares about being fair and honest. The people's lawsuits are based on lies. They conceive evil deeds and then give birth to sin. See, Isaiah told God's people at that time, he said that their sins had cut them off from God. And our sin, it continues to be the thing that separates us from God. You see, God is holy, and sin has no place in his presence. 
And I tell you, that description from Isaiah is a pretty accurate description of a lot of us today, and certainly a lot of our culture today. Your hands are the hands of murderers, and your fingers are filthy with sin. Your lips are full of lies. No one cares about being fair and honest. That sounds like a lot of the world today. And I'm not trying to be too hard on us, but I think too often we're too easy on ourselves. I mean, we all sin, but I think sometimes we act like it's no big deal. I know I'm guilty of that sometimes. You know, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm, it's just a little thing, right? We say, oh, everyone sins. So, what, you know, why should I be that hard on myself? In fact, downstairs thinking says, everyone sins, so I'm no worse than anyone else. Downstairs thinking says, even the Bible says, I'll, I'll never actually be perfect in this life. And I know it says to try, but it's pretty clear from what Scripture says, I can't get there, so why should I bother? Downstairs thinking convinces us to let ourselves off the hook for our sins. And it's pretty persuasive because there's something freeing about deciding it doesn't matter. It doesn't make it right, but there is something freeing about it. But then we read a passage like we're going to focus on today, and it challenges that kind of downstairs thinking. In Matthew 5, again, Jesus is in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. Not too long after he was baptized, not all that long after he began his earthly ministry. We read this in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up to the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. And what followed is commonly considered to be the longest continuous teaching of Jesus, at least that was recorded in Scripture. And, and Jesus covers an amazing variety of topics within this extended teaching. Things like uh, the Beatitudes are there. Jesus teaches about salt and light, and he talks about murder, and he talks about divorce, and he talks about oaths. He talks about love for enemies. He does a great, great little piece on love your enemies. And he talks about prayer. He talks about giving to the needy. And several of the things he talks about there, we actually talked about last week. And he, goes, he talks about really any number of things you can find there in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the midst of it, beginning in verse 27, Jesus says some very important things about sin against the backdrop of the specific sins of adultery and lust. So Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27, he said, You have heard the commandment that says, You must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now that's pretty intense. And you'll remember I told you it might get awkward, so it might be getting awkward now. Because we're actually going to talk about this. Because this is one of those situations where Jesus affirms the Old Testament law and intensifies it, takes it to the next level. And you can find several of these in Jesus' teaching. We talked about a couple of them last week. But these are times where Jesus says, you have heard it said, and then names in Old Testament law, usually one of the Ten Commandments. But I say, and he increases the toughness of the law, or more importantly, he internalizes the law. And that's what he's doing here, because you must not commit adultery is one of the Ten Commandments. That's straight out of Exodus 20. And what that command specifically forbade was a married person having relations with anyone they were not married to, or a single person having relations with someone they were not married to. And the core of this law was that it violated a covenant relationship. It violated marriage. It broke vows that were made in the sight of God. And even if you weren't married, even if you didn't have vows to break yet, it was breaking any potential future vows you or the other person might make. And so it was a serious and important law that had been understood, even if not always followed, since the time of Moses and those Ten Commandments. But what Jesus does here 
as he internalizes this concept by tracing this law and the sin that this law is, is speaking against, traces it inside of us to its true root, to its true source. And the true source of adultery, Jesus shows us here, is lust. When Jesus says anyone who even looks at a woman with lust, if you go to the Greek, the original language, you can just as accurately state that uh, anyone who looks at uh, a woman with a look that results in another spouse becoming the object of one's desire. We need to understand that when Jesus says this, when he takes this well-known command and he takes it to the heart, it was probably challenging to those who were there listening. Because my guess is most people in the crowd, if Jesus had just stopped with, you have heard it said you must not commit adultery, that most people would have been able to say, yep, I'm good. And they would have checked it off their list and said, I'm good. Nope, never committed adultery. Next one, Jesus, let's go. But his redefinition of what qualifies as adultery, that a lustful look, even a lustful thought, creates a situation in which you've already committed this sin, suddenly not as many people can check that one off. And you can imagine the awkwardness as people who maybe were used to feeling good about keeping God's command, or at least this specific one, were suddenly looking at the ground and shuffling their feet. Because Jesus took this internally for them. He sent this into their thought process that, that it's not just what you've done, it's also what you've thought. It's also your intentions that you need to consider. And this was a new idea because when you think about commands, they're like, these are things I can make sure I haven't done. Never killed anybody. Never committed adultery. I do my best not to lie. All these things that the people were probably considering. And Jesus says, listen, if you've had thoughts that were impure, Peter uses some of the same terminology uh, to describe adultery <clears throat> Excuse me, in 2 Peter when he's describing false teachers. And he gives new and clear phrasing to what Jesus said here in 2.14 here. They commit adultery with their eyes, and their desire for sin is never satisfied. They lure unstable people into sin, and they are well-trained in greed. They live under God's curse. And so when he says they commit adultery with their eyes, there's a temptation there to go, well, that doesn't even make sense. Like, you can't commit adultery with your eyes. And then you think about it in light of what Jesus had said, and you go, you know what, that's actually about perfect when it comes to, to phrasing that in a way to understand. You see, what Jesus is really doing here, when he expands the understanding of what constitutes adultery, is he is moving from a legalistic view of the law, where, are thing, where there are things I have to do and things I can't do, and as long as I keep those straight, I'm right with God, to a spiritual view of the law, where motivations and thoughts... And the heart matter just as much, if not more, than simple action. You see, a lot of us are pretty good at keeping our actions in check, but we're not so good when it comes to what's in our hearts and what's on our minds, our thoughts and our motivations. And so Jesus is challenging that legalistic view of only the actions matter. And I think sometimes we're tempted to want to cling to that legalistic view of the law. We like that list of things we need to do and that list of things we aren't supposed to do because when we measure ourselves against it, we can have a pretty confident idea of where we are with God. And on top of that, as a bonus, we don't actually have to examine our motivations. We don't actually have to consider our thoughts. We don't have to actually look at our own hearts. Because if we're honest, I think we would have to admit, I know I would, that examining myself can be painful. 
and I'll end up convicted, feeling guilty. And that's no fun. Nobody, nobody desires to feel that way. And so sometimes we're tempted to try to avoid that. Downstairs thinking says, I, I can do this. I can follow God and keep his commands without it being uncomfortable. I'll avoid the big sins and do the things God wants me to do, like go to church and tithe and pray and read my Bible and keep those Ten Commandments. Downstairs thinking says that's, that's very possible. Downstairs thinking says you can have it all. You, you, can, you can do whatever you need to do. Upstairs thinking says if I truly want to follow God, it's going to be uncomfortable sometimes. It's going to require some self-examination, and it's going to require me dealing with my own piles of sin. I'm going to have to actually pay attention to what's going on in my heart and in my mind. And I'm going to have to realize and admit that I've got some sins. And not just the obvious ones that people can see. I'm not just going to have to deal with the public ones. And I'm not just going to have to deal with my sins, but also the motivation behind them. Ultimately dealing with what's going on in my heart and mind. You see, when Jesus said, it's not just about not committing adultery, it's about avoiding lustful thoughts. He changes the emphasis. Larry Chenard, whose commentary on Matthew is the same one we used last week, here's what he said about it. He said, since Jesus intends the whole person to be captivated by the will of God, he places emphasis upon the inner disposition of the heart, not just the overt physical act. God would rule over his people from the inside out. And the problem is we are often unwilling to worry about the inside, we spend all of our time focused on the outside. That's not how God wants to rule over us. We spend a lot of time trying to make sure we're doing the right things and saying the right things, and we neglect what's in our heart. We neglect to make sure our motivations are pure. We neglect to make sure that our thoughts are pure. That's problematic. It doesn't work well to only focus on the outside because bad things happen when you only focus on the outside. It's kind of like the coffee pot I have in my office. I have a coffee pot in my office I don't use very often because we make coffee at home, and so I bring a cup over, um, and, and, and so I don't, I don't start it up in the morning. It's not like the first thing I do when I get here. And so it sits empty a lot of the time. But you guys, if you drink coffee, you know how it is. Every once in a while, you need that afternoon cup. Of, who needs an afternoon cup of coffee most of the time? Yeah, some, those who do typically have their hand up really quick. Um, if not, it's because they didn't get their coffee on the way in this morning. Like, oh, yeah, me too. Um, yeah, hands go up pretty quick. It's the caffeine. It helps. And so I'll make a pot of coffee some afternoons. Nobody else in the office drinks coffee in the afternoons. They think I'm weird. It's okay. Um, and so it's, whatever I make is mine. Well, sometimes I forget to clean it that day and the next day, and sometimes the next day, and sometimes a week later, I've still forgotten to clean the coffee pot. And the truth is, that happened this week. And I was finishing up the sermon, I was going over my notes, and, and I noticed my coffee pot. And what was interesting about it was I knew how old the coffee was. But had you walked into my office that day, I honestly believe that I could have easily convinced you that that coffee was fine. That from, from looking at it, you would have believed, yeah, he probably made that recently. I could have even turn a little light on so it looked like I did. Because there was coffee in the pot. It was brown. There was nothing floating in it, okay? <laughs> it's just coffee. And so I could have convinced you that coffee was perfectly fine. But there would have been no doubt in your mind. 
that that coffee was at least a week old when you actually took a drink of it. It wouldn't have been hot anymore. It would have tasted, I don't know what it would taste like after a week. I don't, I don't try it at that point. But you would have been clear that it wasn't what it looked like from the outside. That even if it looked like fresh coffee, even if it looked like new coffee, not week-old cold coffee, it was still week-old cold coffee because that's what was in the pot. And you see, some of us, we think the best proof that we're following God is that we appear to have it all together from the outside. And it's possible, here's the problem, it's possible that other people have even pointed that out in you, where they say, man, you just got it all together, you must really be right with God. And, and, and my guess is, if you're anything like me, you're like, and I wish you really knew. But we're tempted to believe that having it all together from the outside shows people that we're right with God. But I'm telling you, we need to acknowledge that we can look like we have it all together from the outside and still be filled with sin. Because if we don't acknowledge that, we'll never admit it. We'll never want to actually take steps to deal with the sin that is in us. And in that, we're kind of like the way Jesus once described the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, meaning verse 25. He said, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. He's pointing out how right they could look on the outside and how full of their sin they could still be on the inside. This is something the Pharisees never wanted to deal with, you know, the inside in their own lives. And a lot of the time, we're the same way. And yet, listen to what Jesus says there. He says, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. That completely fits with what Jesus said in this passage that we're studying. Because he said, look at your motivations, look at the heart, look at the thoughts. The truth is, if we could clean those up, we wouldn't have to worry about what comes out on the outside because it would follow suit. And yet we're often unwilling to do so. But there's a, there's a second half to this passage I wanted us to look at today. And in that, Jesus points out that we absolutely have to deal with our sin, with our motivations, with our thoughts, with our heart. He points it out in a staggering way, a way that probably shakes us a little bit when we first read it in the verses that immediately follow his statement on adultery and lust. Here's what he said in verse 29 and 30. So if your eye, even your good eye, <clears throat> causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now you want to talk about things getting awkward. And suddenly Jesus is talking about gouging out eyes and cutting off hands. We tend to read that and go, well, clearly that's not what Jesus meant. And I'd say we're right to assume that. But if we assume that and just move on, we're missing something very important. You see, I don't really think that Jesus is advocating for self-mutilation here. But he is making an important point about dealing with our sin. That we should deal as drastically as necessary with the sin in our lives. That sin is nothing to mess around with. That we should not be comfortable in our sin. That we should not be willing to accept our sin. And that if there's something we need to do that would help us to deal with our sin or help us to eliminate it, we need to do it. 
In truth, talking, uh, taking adultery and lust as the example, if you struggled with lust and you made yourself blind, it wouldn't mean that you no longer struggled with lust. So again, we're not talking about these specific drastic measures as much as we're talking about drastic measures. And most biblical commentators take these body parts, the eye, even your good eye, and the hand, even your stronger hand, and equate them with valued possessions or desires that we have that must be sacrificed for the sake of our souls and for the sake of the kingdom. And when Jesus said it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell, I want us to consider it this way. It is better for you to lose something of earthly or human importance than for you to end up in hell. And I think that is really what this comes down to, that that there are so many things of this life that we view as value, valuable, that we don't see as threats to our ability to follow Jesus, that we don't see as potentially even offensive to God, that we don't see as things that help us sin or cause us to sin. We try really hard to have it all in this life and let that coexist with our faith. And there are parts of it that work just fine. There are a lot of good things you can have in this life that can absolutely coexist with your faith, but there are things in this life that simply cannot. That simply cannot coexist with truly seeking to follow God. There end up being things we have to be willing to give up in order to truly follow God and seek His righteousness. And it can be confusing to know what those things are, because I'm going to say something out loud that really needs to be said so we can process it today. A lot of sin is fun. Like, I'll admit that from a human earthly perspective. If you're thinking in a downstairs thinking sort of way, a lot of sin is fun. A lot of the, a lot of the things that, that we would identify as sinful behaviors, from an earthly perspective, they're fun. And so that that creates a problem for us because we're never sure what's actually okay and what's not. I've heard personal testimonies that illustrate this fact perfectly. And I know the people sharing their testimony didn't mean to come across this way. But maybe you've heard one of these before where someone's sharing about how God came into their life and changed them. And so they start by talking about their life before God. And whether it was partying or sex or drugs or alcohol or greed or whatever it was, it were the biggest struggle for them in a lot of ways. They have trouble describing that without it sounding like they were having a lot of fun and then they met Jesus. And now they don't get to have fun anymore. That's the way it comes across sometimes. When, when we tell people how we came to know Jesus, man, I had all this fun and I did all these things and I was crazy and it was, it was, I, I shouldn't have been doing those things, but we can't help but make it sound like it was fun. I thought it was what I was supposed to be doing. And then I met Jesus and now I sit at church on Sunday mornings. And that's not what they mean. They don't mean that God takes away all your fun, but sometimes that's the way it comes across. It's also why we as believers sometimes feel like we have to convince people that Christians can still have fun. Because we, we, we have this chip on our shoulder that like <clears throat> we had to stop doing the fun things to follow God. But it's because there are things of this world that are fun or feel good or even give pleasure. It doesn't mean that those things are okay, because some of them are sinful. 
And no matter how fun they are, no matter how good they feel, no matter how much pleasure or success or popularity or status they may give us, we have to end up asking the question, are those things worth our soul? And no matter how harmless they may seem or how many other people are engaged in the same things, they aren't worth your soul. See, that's what I truly hear Jesus teaching here. Consider the things of this world. If they lead to sin, are they worth the cost of your soul? Consider the things of this world. If they lead to sin, are they worth the cost of your soul? And the truth is, this becomes a difficult question because when we say consider the things of this world, I mean consider everything. Even things that on the surface seem good. Consider the job offer you got this week. Is it possible that in that new job, you're going to be asked to do things you're not comfortable doing because they don't line up with your faith? Consider the things of this world. If they lead to sin, are they worth the cost of your soul? Consider a a new relationship, even a new friendship. Is it the right time for you to align yourself with that person? Are you strong enough to not give in to temptation they might draw you toward? Consider the things of this world. If they lead to sin, are they worth the cost of your soul? Now, you should still be trying to impact that person, but you also have to pay attention to how they affect you. And if they're going to lead you to sin, is it worth the cost of your soul? Consider the things of this world. And I think the problem is we don't do that very often. We don't always think about how it truly affects us. When a new situation or a new person or a new opportunity comes into our life, we don't consider whether it might lead us to sin. And before we know it, it already has. It may be best phrased in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. You see, here's what I understand from that passage of Scripture. The best that this world has to offer from an earthly perspective, the absolute best will still eventually fade away. And God will remain. And upstairs thinking means we see that. It means we take action, forsaking even the best of what this world has to offer from that earthly perspective. If that's what it takes to remain true to God, if that's what it takes to remove the sin from our lives, if that's what it takes to truly follow Jesus. There is nothing of this world that is worth the cost of our soul. Nothing. Even the best of what you have, even the best of your life, it's still part of this temporary life. And God is eternal. So I don't know what you need to remove. I don't know, and I'm not going to ask you, but my guess is you do know what you need to remove. You do know what needs to change, because I know what I need to remove. I know what I need to change. Typically, we're not unaware of our sin. I think we need to admit that. Typically, we're not unaware of it. 
Typically, we're just unwilling to acknowledge our sin and therefore unwilling to act to remove it, to, to take steps to remove things from our lives that draw us towards those sins that we struggle with. But, but, but it rings in my ears today, even though he was making a point, he made his point with me when Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If there's something in your life that is making sin so much easy for you, easier for you, if there's something in your life that is making sin more appealing to you, if there's something in your life that is making sin more accessible to you, cut it out. Remove it. Ask for help to do that, whatever it takes. Because whatever it is, it's temporary. And ultimately, it will fade away. It's not worth sacrificing your relationship with God. It's not worth the cost of your soul. Now, there's a question that naturally comes up here, and I want to close with this. You know, we just got, got done with Easter two weeks ago. And we talk about what Jesus did for us through the cross. You know, he, he died for us. He took the, the punishment for our sins. He paid our debt. And if that's the case, if my sins are already taken care of, why does this matter? Because there are people, honestly, that believe, listen, if I accept Jesus as my Savior, I can do whatever I want for the rest of my life, and I'm secure. Because Jesus already took care of it. Now, now the truth is, Jesus did take care of it. But I can't help but think about all the interactions Jesus had with people where, where he'd heal them, and he'd speak to them, and he'd end up saying, son, your sins are forgiven. Or daughter, your sins are forgiven. What did he almost always, if not always, say after that? And see, you know that, because you said it. Go and sin no more. But some of us really struggle to follow that. We say, I know my sins are forgiven. But then we go on sinning. We, We believe that what Jesus did on the cross truly paid the debt for our sin. But we go on sinning. See, we are called to live differently than we did before we knew Jesus. To know that, that your sins have been forgiven, but to still live like you know sin's not a good thing, it takes upstairs thinking to hold to that, to examine yourself, to, to live that way. But I can't help but hear Jesus' words. Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. There is nothing of this world that is worth the cost of our soul. Nothing. And so if there's something that might be costing us that, if there's something that's that much in the way, let's clear it out. Let's pray. God, thank you for challenging us to examine our own hearts, to examine our motives, to consider more than just the actions we take, more than just what's on the outside. Because God, if we aren't willing to do that, we'll probably think we're fine when we're not. 
God, we believe that when you sent Jesus to die for our sins, that that's exactly what happened, that our debt was paid. Yet you've called us to live righteously. And so, God, whatever we need to do to make that happen, whatever we need to change to make that happen, whatever we need to remove from our lives to deal with our sin, to distance ourselves from the sins that we struggle with, God, I pray that you would give us the drive to do that this very day. God, you know the sins that we struggle with. Help us to be willing to identify them, to acknowledge them, to do what needs to be done to deal with them. God, help us to realize that when we act like this is no big deal, we're wrong. God, we're never going to get this perfectly. We're never going to get this 100% right. And so we're thankful still for your grace and your forgiveness. And yet I pray that each and every day we're striving more and more to live like Jesus, who did walk this earth without sin, who showed us what righteousness looks like, who gave us a path to follow. And I pray that we follow him with all our hearts and cast everything else aside. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.